0: You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Now we come to Genesis chapter 6 through 8, and this is a story that is familiar to many of you. It is the, the historical story, the reality of the flood and Noah and the ark. And so there's a lot of wisdom in this story for us, and I ran across this some time ago and saved it for when someday, if I was ever preaching through this passage, I'd get to read this. So some some wisdom extracted from the story that we're going to look at today. Number one, plan ahead. It was not raining when Noah built the ark. Number two, stay fit. When you're 600 years old, someone might ask you to do something that is really big. Number three, don't listen to critics. Do what has to be done and build on high ground. Number four, for safety's sake, travel in pairs. Number five, speed is not always an advantage. The cheetahs were on board, but so were the snails. Okay? Number six, if you can't fight or flee, float. Number seven, take care of your animals as if they were the last ones on earth. Number eight, stay below deck during the storm. Number nine, remember that the ark was built by amateurs and the the Titanic was built by professionals. Okay. Number ten, don't forget we all start out in the same boat. And of course, number eleven, don't miss the boat. But we can actually do better than that. And we're going to do better than that as we look at this story. That is familiar to many of you. But with this story comes a number of legitimate and necessary questions. One of those questions that lurks out there is, was this truly a global flood or was it a a regional flood? I mean, the common denominator between the two is this flood did wipe out all life on earth, but... How far had humanity spread across the breadth of the earth and animal life and what have you? So was it a global flood or was it more of a local regional flood? And was there really an arc? And was it really the dimensions that are specified here in Scripture as we'll look at here in just a minute? And was it really large enough to hold two of every kind of animal and Noah's family? You just start getting into these very legitimate questions that we wrestle and struggle with, anticipating that you would have some of these questions. Next Sunday, in the hour that follows this one, in third worship hour, we will be having our last Genesis discussion forum, and it will be on the flood, and we will wrestle with these very questions together. So we hope that you can stick around next Sunday and make time for that. But there's some even bigger and I think even more significant questions that are lurking within this passage, and we need to do business with them. And one of the fundamental questions is, how could God do this? Because this is an act of divine judgment. No question about it. God wipes out all life on the earth. Can we take that a step further? And I've heard this often. How could a loving God do that? If this really did happen, and it did, if this really is historical, and it is, how can a loving God do this? We're going to go toe-to-toe with that question this morning as we look at this passage. And I think the answers to that as well as what this passage reveals will surprise you in some good ways this morning. So if you have a Bible, please open to Genesis chapter 6. Either turn on your tablet or phone or take out your hardcover Bible if you're more old school like me. However you get there, get there. And if you don't have access to those means, I am going to put this up on the screens behind me here and I will read this to you. We don't have time, unfortunately, to read all of Genesis 6, 7, and 8. So we're going to kind of do the middle portion that sets the table for where we're going this morning. So let me read this to you. At this point, as we pick up with last week, where Sean left us in the passage that precedes this, the verses that are right before verse 5 here are basically telling us and helping us understand that humanity is increasing in number. It says that Population was increasing, and this is where the story then picks up. But the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you're to build it. The ark is to be three hundred cubits long, that's about a football and a half long, football field and a half long, fifty cubits wide, almost a full football field wide, and thirty cubits high, almost a third of a football field high. Make a roof for it, leveling below leveling below the roof and opening one cubit high all around, and put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. And I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it. And everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You were to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And you were to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and to store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything, just as God commanded him. And the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I've found you righteous in this generation. Now let's begin to go back and work our way through this passage How bad had things got? Really bad. And we see this reality as we continue to work our way through Genesis. Sean helped us see this once again last week, if you weren't here. But Genesis traces human history, and once sin and brokenness and selfishness and disease and death had entered the world, there is this progressive downward cycle, and things keep going from bad to worse. And this is what describes that this cycle of violence and brokenness. Violence now wasn't just an occasional thing, it was a constant thing, and it was now a way of life. You ever been in an atmosphere or a situation where you legitimately are living with fear of violence or fear upon your life? I can honestly say I had never experienced that until about three years ago when we got to go to Israel. The first day we were in Israel, a mile and a half from our hotel, where actually some of our group had actually passed through. Twenty minutes earlier, someone, actually a couple people were stabbed to death. And from that point on, it was unquestionable the tension that we felt in the atmosphere around us, despite soldiers walking around everywhere with automatic weapons, you did not feel safe. And there was a sense that something, not good, could happen at any point. There was this constant tension, this constant really fear that pervaded everything. In fact, our Israeli guide, who was a native of the country, she said that if at all possible, I would move away from here because I live in constant fear of my life. You never know what's going to happen and who it's going to happen to. And it was palatable. And that is what life was like prior to the flood. That's exactly what's being described here, violence as a way of life. And as a culture, we're beginning to experience more and more of this. In the wake of the, the Thousand Oaks shooting last week, I read this article in USA Today, and maybe you saw it too, but to this point in the calendar year, there have been 307 mass shootings in our country, and that's defined as a shooting where more than four or more people die. 307. 311 days when the article was written into the calendar year this year. This is a historic problem. We see it in our culture today. We see it in the pages of Scripture from thousands and thousands of years ago. It's a historic problem because it's a genetic problem. Because we are broken by nature, all of us, and by choice. The Bible calls that sin. And this goes all the way back to the book of beginnings, which Sean helped us see last week when we went all the way back to the book of Genesis, this very book we're in, and we saw that all this began to take place when Adam and Eve chose to decide what was right and what was wrong on their own, apart from God. And this value is taught in our culture, it is celebrated in our culture, it is perpetuated in this culture, that you are the final decision maker, you are the final judge on what is right or wrong in your life. And the problem with that is because we are broken people, Ultimately, our bent is to make life all about us. And therefore, the world is broken because we are broken, all of us. We're all in the same boat. We all start out in the same place. And this is where we have to make friends with this reality of divine judgment, as difficult as it is. And it's tough. In fact, in our culture, This is a common response to stories and realities like the one we're looking at today. People do not buy into the necessity of judgment. And even those of us who do struggle with it. But I think this is really captured in what Bill Moyer said, who did a PBS series on the Genesis series two, three years ago. And this is one of his quotes. Why does God have to destroy everyone just because he's unhappy with the choices we make? In our century, we've had so many examples of purges where people said, let's get rid of all the bad people and start again with the good people. I would suggest this passage is why a lot of people today cannot abide the Bible and cannot come to terms with a God who would do something like this. And really, the meta-message in there is this. How could a loving God judge people in this way? And what does the passage tell us? It says that everyone starts out in the same place, in the same boat. We are all corrupt. Everybody on the earth had corrupted their ways. And in the original language, what God is literally saying here is I am going to destroy the self destroyed, because that's what corrupt means. And the reality of sin and brokenness is that it's never neutral. It always grows and it always perpetuates and it always pervades and it always advances to the point where ultimately it leads to death. Violence unchecked just goes on to cycle into more violence which eventually leads to vengeance. And that's what was captured in what Sean helped us see last week when Lamech, if you'll remember what he said, I have wounded, I, uh, I have killed a young man who wounded me. You hurt me, I'm going to take you out. We see this cycle again and again. I'll never forget a quote I heard years ago from a man who was from the Balkans. He was Serbian. And in the 90s, when that part of the world began to fall apart and ethnic rivalries exploded into outright violence and you had genocide and you had all these horrible, horrific things being perpetuated on these peoples in that region by one another, going back hundreds and hundreds of years of hatred and history. And now it just absolutely exploded into a colossal tragedy. Just horrific things of people doing horrible things to other people. And this man got out of there alive. And he said, you have no idea what it's like to have someone sweep into your region and to burn your house and for you to lose all your possessions and for them to rape your, wife and, rape your wife and daughters in front of you and then to kill them and then to kill all your friends and to wipe out your entire village, all that leads to is more and more violence unless there is a divine judge who someday will call all people to account, who someday will right all wrongs, who will someday be the one who will enact justice. And he said, the only reason I have not picked up an automatic weapon and gone back to my country and killed those who killed my family is because I absolutely believe in that reality. There is a divine judge and I am not him. But there's another reason why God enacts this type of justice. Yes, he is the divine judge. But what you have to understand is something that we pass over when we read this passage most often. And that is, how does God feel about judgment? Does he like it? Does he enjoy it? Does he look forward to it? Because many times, our broken culture sees God through this lens. And then responds the way Bill Moyer did. I want nothing to do with that, God. But wait a minute. How does God himself feel about judgment? As upsetting as this may be for you, as difficult as this is for us to get our hands around, as emotionally troubling as this may be, you are not at all as impacted by this as God is. Because look what it says here. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. In some translations it says his heart was pained. You have to understand and appreciate what this is saying here. This word is used in other parts of the Old Testament like in Isaiah 54, 6. In there the context is abandonment by a spouse. It is not my intent to add to your pain if this describes something that has happened to you. So please understand that. But I can tell you as a pastor... Over 27 years of sitting and hearing from people the pain and the legitimate hurt and heartache in their lives, there is no pain like being abandoned by your spouse. It is a pain and a heartache that is unmatched by almost any other experience. That is the word that's being used to describe how God feels about the reality that he has to judge the very people and the very earth that he created. Divine judgment is upsetting to you. The concept is upsetting to you. It comes nowhere near to what it does to the heart of God. Because this God has tethered and tied his heart to ours. He doesn't want to do this, but he has to. And legitimately we would say, well, why does he have to? Because we have left him No other choice. Because what you will see throughout the reality of the Bible is that God's judgment is always preceded by His mercy and grace. And His mercy and grace always follows His judgment as well. And we see both in this passage. Let me ask you a question How long and how many chances did God give to humanity? to enter back into right relationship with him when things began to go south and the violence continued to cycle and get worse and get worse. Again, if you'll remember back with me to last week and what Sean took us through, we're not talking probably about hundreds of years, we're talking about thousands of years. Thousands of years for people to make a different choice, to have another chance, to do what the Bible calls repentance, to turn back to God multiple chances over and over again and they say no 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 if that wasn't enough there was at least a hundred years from the point that noah began to build the ark to the point that he got into it maybe even 120 years scholars are divided on that but what they're unified on is there was a lot of time for people to hear a message of what was going to happen, and they chose not to respond. God's grace always, always, always precedes his judgment. He gives people far more chances than you and I would ever give them. And some might say, well, what about the innocent people? Or to go back to what Moyer said in his quote, what about the good people as opposed to the bad people? But we've just seen the reality that There is no division like that. There is no us and them. There is no good people and bad people. There's just people, and all people start out in the same place, broken. Therefore, there is no such thing as an innocent person. What about all the innocent animals? Well, again, we begin to see why God hates sin and brokenness so much. Because it isn't just about you and me. Our brokenness isn't just about you and me and our little world. It affects the world around us. And it always has consequences for those around us, in the world around us. No wonder God wants to eradicate it and get rid of it. It's horrible. Which now brings us to Noah. It says that Noah was righteous, blameless, and walked with God. In the persistence of God's grace, we see a man who loves him. What does that mean? He was righteous. Well, at its essence, it means he was in right relationship with God. He was blameless. Was he perfect? That's not what that means. No. No, what blameless means is that he knew he was broken and he did business with his brokenness. He dealt with his sin on an ongoing basis. He repented. He constantly chose to turn back to God, to realign his heart with God's heart. And it says he walked faithfully with God. And this this description is used for faithful men and women of God who have an intimacy that, with God that continues to grow and progress and deepen because they live life on his terms and not theirs. They really believe him when he says what he says. And they, they love him because he has first loved them. That's, that's in part what it means to walk with God. So let's enter this story once again. We don't know if there was any water near Noah. Most scholars from what I've been able to read believe there wasn't. So imagine how this conversation could have gone with him and his wife. God has appeared to me and he has told me to build a boat. Had they ever seen a boat? Did they even know what a boat was? We, we don't know. So can you imagine how this conversation went with his wife? Yeah, God appeared to me told me to build a boat. What's a boat, honey? I don't know, but we're supposed to build it. Okay, where's the water? I don't know. Really? And God showed you these things? Yes. Has God showed you your brain? I mean, have you been out in the vineyard a little too much? I mean, what's, what's going on here? Where'd you come up with this? I mean, who knows what that conversation went like. But what do you think people thought when Noah began to build this ark, this huge boat? Can you imagine what they said? How they mocked him, how they belittled him? And can you imagine what Noah was thinking? It could not have been easy to live in the world in this culture with violence spiraling out of control with things so incredibly bad. You think we have life hard at times. Imagine what it was like with how it's described here. And what is God doing? Nothing for hundreds, thousands of years. At least it feels like God has been doing nothing. And then God shows up after hundreds, thousands of years, presumably. He's been more engaged and involved in that. But again, we're thinking through what it must have been like for Noah's frame of reference and tells him to build a boat. Okay. And then 100, 120 years goes by and nothing happens. You ever waited for God to move for 100, 120 years? Of course you haven't. You ever gone through seasons in your life where it feels like God is doing nothing? Of course you have, and you will. There will be times when it feels like God is doing nothing. Take the election cycle this last week. Some of you are, are really discouraged and disappointed about that. Maybe some of you are encouraged about that. But what we need to remind ourselves again is that although politics and education and government and allocation of resources, those can change things, those are not a deep enough or lasting enough change. You see, for thousands of years, we've been saying and trying and doing to get the right people in power, trying to educate people so they'll make better choices, trying to, you know, allocate resources, trying to use governmental entities to try to fix things. And yes, there is change that can and should happen through those entities, but we're all still in the same boat. We're all still broken. Those things will not change and produce the core change that needs to happen in each one of us. And that's why this story is so encouraging. Because, how is Noah described? Righteous, blameless, walked with God. Boy, that couldn't have been easy, but it was possible. And do you know what you have and what I have? If you know God the way Noah did, if you know God, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've received Him into your life, you have the Spirit of God. You can do this. Is it possible for you to be righteous? Yep. Many of you are. Is it possible for you to live blamelessly? Yep. You may not think of yourself that way, but you can and you are. Is it possible to walk with God in this vibrant, growing, significant, real relationship? Yes. And many of you are. But let's take a step back for a minute. What got on that ark? Well, Noah and his family did, eight of them, the passage tells us. The animals did. But what else got on that ark? Sin did. Noah was still a sinful man, as was his family. Not his core identity, but it was a reality that he was still doing business with In his life. So that begs the necessary question what in the world did the flood accomplish then? Well, again, this takes us back to what Sean helped us see last week that there were two lines, two lineages in that human population at the time. There was the line of Cain, which was very quickly outgrowing the line of Seth. The line of Cain was the brokenness and violence and sin of Cain continuing to be passed down through that line. The line of Seth was the line of righteousness, but that line was in trouble. And the flood leveled the playing field now and gave that line another chance. But remember, Sean took us back here last week, and we need to go back once again to the very beginning because the flood and the ark are pointing to something far greater than the here and now of that time. Remember when sin had entered the world, when Adam and Eve had disobeyed God, and God was rightfully punishing all those who were involved, he comes to Satan and he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And eating dust is a euphemism for total defeat. And this is how he was going to be defeated and will be defeated and is defeated. I will put enmity... Bet- enmity Between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is all singular. This is a real person. So this is talking about Satan, but this is talking about someone who is going to come from the offspring, or to use another word, the seed of Eve, who would ultimately restore things to the way God always intended them to be. And who is that seed? Jesus Christ and there will be multiple times through the story of human history when that seed will be endangered, and it will look like, boy, this is not going to work out the way it should have. And this is one of those times where the seed of Cain is outstripping the seed or the line of Seth, and it looks like that all hope is going to be lost, and then God comes and does this. So sin then, because of the flood, is restrained, it's restricted, it's reduced, but it doesn't end it. Okay. So how well does all that work out? What does the flood really accomplish then if sin got on the boat with Noah and his family and then got off the boat when the waters receded? That is a great question. Come back next week (laughs) and we'll go there. I've got to give you a reason to come back. So what does all this point to? The hope of salvation. God's not done with this world. Even when it feels like he is. The righteous seed is pointing to a greater Noah. The one true ark. And ark, by the way, means covering. You see the imagery here and the reality here? This is pointing to a greater and final salvation and judgment because Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, will now come into our lives and he will wash our hearts and give us a new heart and create this inside-out transformation that education and politics and government and empty religion will never ever hope to touch Or make happen. It's like being born again. It's like what's illustrated when someone gets baptized and it shows that their heart's been washed because of Jesus Christ and now they're living for Him. And by the way, next week we'll have baptisms in all of our services. You don't want to miss next weekend because we'll celebrate that together. But this is about faith. Noah was a man of faith six times in these passages it talks about his faith his faith, what's faith? At its essence it's absolutely believing that whatever God says can be absolutely trusted it's trusting and obeying God even when he makes no sense you willing to do that? will you trust and obey God even when it makes no sense? because you know what? We all start out in the same boat. Many years ago, my dad inherited this boat from my grandpa. And worship team, you can come on up here as we're wrapping up with this. My dad inherited this boat from my grandpa, and he did a bunch of work on it and restored it. And I'll never forget the day we took it out. We, we got to Lake Billy Chinook right at the break of dawn, and there was hardly anyone on the lake. In fact, when we put our boat in and launched it, there wasn't anyone on the lake And I was just this little kid that just thought this was the greatest thing. And we took this boat out, and it worked great for the first 20 minutes. And we got out in the middle of the lake, and then it died. And remember, there's no one on the lake but us. And finally, at the far end of the lake where we launched, here comes another boat, and they launch and they're skiing and doing whatever. And we're just drifting in the middle of the lake. And as a little kid, you know, I'm a little kid. I'm not thinking, you know, real rationally and reasonably like an adult. I'm, I'm scared. And so I'm thinking, okay, can I swim to that shore? Because I don't want to be on this broken boat. And it's way too far. There's no way that would ever happen. And finally, this other boat noticed we weren't going anywhere. And so they came over to us and they said, you guys okay? We're not. So they tied us up to a rope and towed us back to the launch. They rescued us. Because we all start out in the same place, your boat is broken, just like mine. And the time will come when as good as that boat's working, it's gonna stop working. And apart from Jesus Christ, you will have something then come into your life like a loss, like a crisis, like a disease, like a death, and all of a sudden you'll realize you're in the wrong boat. You're in the same boat you started with. It's a broken boat. And you need God to rescue you. And that's exactly why he has come into this world through Jesus Christ, is to rescue us from the brokenness that so many of us settle for when we don't have to. So once again, this amazing God comes to you in his grace and his mercy and says, It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be in a broken boat, but it's not okay to stay there and it's not okay to stay that way. Will you allow him to rescue you? If you know Jesus Christ this morning, you have been set free. And remember who you are. Live out that reality because you can. He's given you his spirit. And too many of us find our identity in our brokenness. We need to stop doing that. That's not who you really are. You are a child of God, so you can and need to live like this. But there are some of you in a gathering this size, if you're honest, you're not free. Because you know in your heart of hearts that you're not sure you really believe this and you have put your finger on the challenge before you. Will you believe in this amazing God who comes to you in your brokenness, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done, he offers to save you from that. He knows what you've done and what I've done. You have nothing to prove to him. He offers you this free gift of freedom. The real question is, will you believe him? Will you take it from him? And up here off to the sides, we have a prayer team who would love to pray with you because Noah, Noah, was an upright man he was a righteous man it means he was the right relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ God is not impressed with your resume you are not right with him only through Jesus do you have right relationship with God we would love to pray with you and have you enter into that and for those of you who do know him You can live a blameless life, a number of you are, but it means that you need to do business with the brokenness in your life. Stop settling for it, stop accommodating it, stop making excuses for it, but allow God to help you do something about it. Our prayer teams and I and the person who brought you, we're we're here to help you do that because there's nothing better than walking with God, nothing is better than walking with your God. And that is my prayer for you, that for those of us who know him, as you go out these doors, you'll walk with him. You'll live out who he's made you to be. And you'll find the joy and the hope and the peace that he promises you. So let me pray his blessing over you. Lord Jesus, would you please help us to take you at your word and to trust you? For some here, that probably means trusting that you are who you say you are and receiving you into their lives as their Lord and Savior. For the others of us who have done that, would we remember our identity in you? Would we stop finding our identity in our brokenness? And would we choose to believe you when you say, you can do this, you can walk with me? And God, as we go from here, would we be an irresistible influence to this community around us? Would they see that there is something different about us and would we have the opportunity to tell them it's you? So God, will you go before us and with us as you promised to do? And we ask all this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. We'll see you back next week. Thank you for listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.